Hello and welcome to chapter 14 of Venture Deals, our Venture Deals podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And we're here to talk about letters of intent, the other term sheet. Quick recap. I think everyone at this point in time knows this. We are reviewing Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. We're on chapter 14 of what? 16. Okay. Only two chapters left. I think we're going to break this one into two chapters, into two podcasts because it's so long. So this will be part one. We're going to get through the first half or so of chapter 14. So letters of intent, something that we've actually been dealing with quite a bit recently. There seems to be an uptick in M&A activity for our clients. Aaron, let's just talk briefly or kind of high level what the difference is between a letter of intent and a term sheet. Yeah. So a letter of intent generally comes in um, sort of in the acquisition context or the M&A context. And I think of term sheets as being much earlier in the process than a letter of intent. With a letter of intent, generally speaking, the business folks, both for the target and the acquirer, have had back and forth conversations. They've usually signed NDAs. They've usually um, maybe even had a, a memorandum of understanding. And then the letter of intent is sort of, uh, it seems like just one more sort of not really the actual agreement, but closer to an agreement and a little more fleshed out. It's definitely the per- precursor to what we generally call definitive documents, or those would be the transaction documents. But yeah, like Aaron mentioned, letter of intent is usually pretty long. You could call, you could see a, a venture firm or a, a venture investment calling their first document a letter of intent or in an acquis, acquisition context, the first document would be called a term sheet, but you really don't. Right. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, Yeah. but typically a term sheet is for financing a letter of intent or an IOI, like Aaron said, an indication of interest or an MOU, memorandum of understanding, would be for an acquisition context. Sometimes they'll use an LOI for a joint venture as well, but typically with a uh, with an investment term sheet, this time you know, acquisition letter of intent. Now, in our experience, the more detailed the letter of intent, the better. And this seems like a pain in the ass because if you have a detailed letter of intent, that means you're probably getting the attorneys involved. And that might sound like a pain in the ass in general, just getting the attorneys involved. But man, the sooner and earlier you get your attorneys involved on this, the better things are going to go. Yeah, I know that the letter of intent is not the definitive asset purchase agreement or you know merger agreement, but it needs to be a comprehensive document that you know this is the letter of intent. You guys are agreeing on, hey, these are the the high level bullet points of what we're agreeing to, and if you don't have that spelled out in a lot of detail, there's a lot of wiggle room, and you know one side or the other can say, oh no. no, no. We didn't address that, but here's what we were thinking. You know, you do something that I really like with letters of intent, Aaron, that I've picked up from you, is you keep the letter of intent on your desk until the deal is done. And you note the first version of it, and we, we go back to it and refer, refer to it. And I really like when we're talking about a point and we're trying and we're doing the drafting and we try and we think, okay, what was the intent here? What, what did they agree to? We always go back to the letter of intent or when we're reviewing drafts, right? right. Typically, it's most common you see the purchaser drafts the documents, the seller reviews. So if we're on the seller side and we're reviewing the documents, a lot of times we go back to the letter of intent and we say, this isn't what was agreed upon, right? This right. isn't what the terms were. And it doesn't mean you can't renegotiate in the middle of it, right. but 
there's a certain art to that. So it's definitely something I've picked up from Aaron, but that just shows you how important the LOI is in the term sheet for a, you know, a well-negotiated venture round. Those things should be pretty material and have all the material terms, and they should be really dictating the course. And if you're hesitant to get your attorneys involved early on because you're worried about costs, just know that when your attorney is reviewing, you know, if you're seller side, reviewing the, the definitive documents and they have a comprehensive, detailed uh, letter of intent they can go back and reference against, that's going to make their review process a lot easier and a lot quicker. God, how many times, Aaron, have we said, this is a shitty provision? Why are we agreeing to this? Right. They say, well, it's in the LOI. Yeah. That's just what they agreed to. Now, also, when we say get the attorneys involved, that doesn't mean you have to get on a phone call with all the parties and have a big, massive conference call with everyone involved. That means reach out to your attorney and say, hey, we're going through this process. What do you think? What should I be looking for here? What are the key things I need to negotiate? Can you review this draft? Pretty typical, the principles are just going back and forth. It's not uncommon to get to a signed term sheet without the attorneys. What makes it difficult for attorneys is if we get to a signed term sheet and we haven't yet seen it or a signed letter of intent. If we've been going back and forth with you, you know, confidentially or privately, and the principles have been negotiating, totally fine. Or a lot of times you'll get to a letter of intent. There'll be three or four turns on it between the principles, and then they'll turn it over to the attorneys right. to finalize it. Now, this chapter gets real, real into the weeds and into detail. And honestly, if you're not in the process of selling your company, you might just want to put this on the shelf. Uh, maybe just skim it now so you know what you're looking for, but come back and really review it when you get closer to selling your company. But I think the chapter did a great job of going through all the key provisions. I can tell you that the more deals we do and see here at our firm, the more time we spend on letters of intent and drafting what looks like negotiated nuances or details into the letter of intent. Because as Aaron mentioned, if it's in the letter of intent, it's usually going to find its way into the deal. This is a chapter that back when I was a first year associate at a big firm doing you know my first acquisition deal... I really wish I would have had this chapter to read just so that I knew what was going on, what these things meant, the difference between an asset and a stock deal. Okay. So let's start there. Asset okay. deal versus a stock deal. We're in the process of negotiating this right now. Aaron, if you're a seller, what would you prefer, asset or stock? If I'm a seller, I want a stock deal. Why? Because it basically, it's selling the entire company wholesale. There's no sort of lingering, basically, zombie entity that you have to keep open to satisfy statute of limitations requirements or you know, make sure that nobody else is going to come sue you. And so I'd rather just get rid of the whole company and be done with it. Absolutely. Seller just wants to go to stock sale. Realize, guys, the stockholders own the company. So if you sell the stock, then the new, then the purchaser, the buyer now owns the stock that owns the company. So they own the company that way. The stockholders wipe their their hands clean of it. So that's one reason why. Yep. Like Aaron said, just nice and clean. The company no longer exists from our perspective, or we no longer have ownership in the company. What's another reason why you'd rather sell the stock? Uh, there's tax implications. Tax implications, right? It's better to sell the stock because you get capital gains treatment. Let's uh, caveat this with the fact that we are not tax attorneys. We are not tax attorneys. First of all, we're not accountants. We're not yep. CPAs. Then we're not even tax attorneys. So yes, please, if you're getting into one of these things, you need to visit with a tax attorney. Come work with us. We will bring in a tax attorney to help us out. The the larger the uh, the stakes, the more important, the higher the stakes, the more important the tax attorney becomes. But yes, a stock sale is generally more tax efficient. 
the flip side of that is an asset sale. Right. Who prefers the asset sale, Aaron? The buyer. Why? They can cherry pick the assets they want. You know, they can say, okay, we'll take basically the high performing or the most valuable assets. And, you know, if there's something that maybe, you know, they already have handled on the buyer side, they don't need that particular asset. They can leave it there. And also the liabilities don't so come they're along. They're not picking up any liabilities. Right. A typical startup, let's just say you're a third or fourth year startup. You've raised, I don't know, anywhere from two to six million in funding. You've probably got 20 to 30 employees. Here's a list of some of the liabilities you might have. One, you might have some equipment leases out there. Maybe you have a couple copiers, maybe you have a phone system, maybe you have some technology, some things that you leased. Maybe you had a, a company car for whatever reason. Two, at some point in time, if you had that many employees, you probably had to let a couple of them go and they may or may not have existing claims against you. Some of them might have some sort of wage discrimination claim, some sort of gender discrimination suit, some sort of harassment suit around the office. And those things might have been unsettled, especially if these things happened when your company was young and you weren't using an attorney. You might have taxes. Have your taxes been properly filed? Those things are still all associated with the company. You might have a couple of lawsuits sitting out there. Maybe a, a guy did some dev work, did some computer, you know, some uh, computer development work for you a couple of years ago and you had to spat about the bill. And this guy thinks you owe him another $5,000. When a buyer buys just the assets, they're not dealing with any of those liabilities. When they buy the company, when they buy the stock and they get the whole company, they're dealing with those liabilities. So as a buyer, you almost always, almost always prefer to be the, uh, prefer to buy just the assets. Do we want to get into when a buyer might want to buy the stock over the assets? Sure. I'm thinking particularly in the context of, heavily regulated industries where, you know, a company might have certain licenses that can't be transferred to a new buyer. And so um, you're going to want to buy the whole company. So you get that license or, you know, you get that permit or whatever you need to operate the business. That's a great one. Or another one could be if you have a company that has multiple subsidiaries and you have a working relationship between the parent and the subsidiaries, and you just want to buy those. We don't deal with a lot of franchise companies, but if you were buying a franchise company, you definitely want that. There's usually many related parties. And then also on the tax side, unfortunately, it's not as clear as, well, stock sale equals capital gains, asset sale equals um, ordinary income, or taxed at ordinary income. Because when you buy an asset, the you get taxed based on the underlying nature of the asset, so if you're buying intangibles or goodwill, that gets taxed one way. If you're buying accounts receivable, that gets taxed another way. If you're buying cash, right? If there's a bunch of cash in the account that's already been taxed, that gets taxed another way. So it does get pretty complicated. But just understand that asset versus stock sale, most of the time, the buyer will prefer asset, the seller will prefer stock. What you want to do is you want to understand what the tax implications are so you know what your exit number is, right? Because a lot of founders there understand if I could exit for 10 million or 50 million, then I'd be fine. But if you're exiting for 50 million in an asset sale and you're going to get taxed higher, then your returns, your investors might be lower than you were planning for. So that's where your accountant or your tax attorney can come in handy. Now, the form of consideration, interesting. I thought they did a good job with some examples in the book here. Right. The forms of consideration, cash, stock, but not only just stock. How is how can cash be paid, Aaron? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean... Just because you're looking at a $100 million deal doesn't necessarily mean you will get $100 million out of the deal. Um, typically, in these types of acquisitions, there's going to be, okay, some form, some percentage of it that's going to be held back as escrow for, you know, any sort of liability or indemnifications that come up. 
Uh, then you'll probably have some sort of earnout provision. You know, you're not going to get the full hundred million. You'll get eighty million, and the other twenty million. I'm ex- I'm ignoring the escrow component right now. The other twenty million. You know, if the company or the assets or whatever hit certain metrics, and the company that is acquired does particularly well, then you get that full twenty million. I think the prevailing notion is that whatever the earnout is, you're rarely going to get all of that. Right. So keeping on that, also, as Aaron mentioned, there could be a holdback or an escrow amount. And the holdback is used to offset damages. So if they're buying your assets and they find out later that your assets were actually encumbered or owned by someone else, or if they buy your company and then a, you know six months later there's a big lawsuit against your company, they will use the holdback or the escrow amount to offset those damages. And they'll do that through breaches of reps and warranties or damages for breaches and reps and warranties or indemnification claims. So this stuff gets really technical technical and tricky. And this is why you want to make sure that your lawyers are well-versed in M&A if they're going to negotiate these things for you. But understand the $100 million purchase price, if it's not all cash up front, there's a chance you're not getting all of that. But that's that's just the way these deals go and, and get used to it. On the flip side, from the buyer's perspective, we absolutely want an earn out, right? Because you're selling me, this company's worth $100 million because you've done this and you can continue to do $10 million a year in revenue. Well, fine, prove it. And a lot of times you can negotiate so that the numbers are actually better. So if you're selling to your seller, excuse me, to the buyer, and you say, hey, we've been doing $10 million a year in revenue. We're going to do $20 million each in the next couple of years. And they bake that into the purchase price. But then they make you hitting $20 million a condition precedent for earning some of the earnout. Well, then have an upside as well. Okay, fine. But if we hit $40 million, I want to make more. And there's ways to do that. So there can be some pros to earnouts, But I would expect when we see it, most of the deals we see, we see some sort of earnout. And the, the other thing is they need a reason for management to stay incentivized. Right. And they do that through the earnout or through a separate management pool. If you're getting stock in a company, I want to make the point again that they make here in the book, because we do see a lot of early stage companies, a lot of our clients, not a lot, but a handful of our clients get bought out in stock sales by some other whiz bang startup that's just a little further along than them. And if that startup just went out and raised at a $50 million valuation and they say, hey, we're going to give you 10% of our business. We're going to give you 10% of our stock. So that's $5 million. But it's $5 million in common, right? And they just raised 50, at a $50 million valuation. So they raised $15 million. So you have $15 million in liquidation preference ahead of you. So your $5 million in common, your 10% of the business, $5 million in common is not worth $5 million at all. I can guarantee you on a 409A valuation, right. it's going to be worth significantly less. So be mindful of what the true value of the stock is if you're doing a stock. Sale. Now, there are certain instances where that works out in you know the seller's favor. I'm thinking particularly of Mark Cuban when he sold Broadcast.com to Yahoo, got stock in Yahoo, mm-hmm. and then I think as soon as his lockup expired, went and sold it and yeah, made, Yahoo it, made it performing very well. Right. Yeah. So absolutely, it definitely can if you know. Airbnb wants to buy you out, then sure, let's take all stock, right? I'd probably rather have stock than cash right. at that point in time. On page 179, at the box on 179, Aaron, they said something that's really interesting in the entrepreneur's perspective that I want to discuss. And we kind of touched on this. But he talks about reps and warranties. Now, representations and warranties are the reps and warranties that the company and generally the principals or officers are going to make regarding the business. They're going to make reps and warranties like the company's in good standing, no one else. There's no other equity holders other than the ones that we've showed you. We have all the licenses we need. We filed all of our taxes. We don't have any environmental claims. The only litigation issues are the ones we've disclosed to you, things like that. 
And then if those reps and warranties are found out to not be true, then that's what the holdback or the escrow amounts for so the buyer can recover their damages for you breaching those reps and warranties. Typically, this entrepreneur says you should be willing to stand behind your reps and warranties with a reasonable 12 to 18 month escrow at a minimum. Okay, so what this guy's advocating, this feels pretty heavy because a lot of times we, we stop it at 12. Yeah. But 12 to 18 months, you're not getting your holdback. And sometimes, guys, the holdback is just that. It's not contingent on any future earnout. It's just a holdback for, separate that from an earnout, right? The holdback is to offset damages from the reps and warranties if they are any. So make sure there's money there. To make sure there's money there. So right? you don't have to go pull out of your wallet. Here's, you know, if another you million dollars. The rep and warranty, right. The buyer's not coming after you individually. They just go to the escrow account and say, hey, you breached during the sale process. We're going to pull out $500,000 or whatever the breach is worth. Versus an earn out. An earn out is when the principals go and earn more money you know, for the purchase price. But anyway, so this says you should be willing to stand behind at 12 to 18 months. The argument we generally have for 12 months, because we're on, when we're on buyer side, we're always looking right. at them saying, Hey, I want you to stand behind this for as long as the statute of limitations lasts on the contract claims. Right. Right. For the fundamental reps, I want you to stand behind this forever. For tax reps, right? You know, tax is six years. I want you to stand behind this forever. But when we're on seller side, we certainly don't want to be sick, you know, screwing around with this. And that's our argument is, hey, look, we're selling you the business. We're wiping our hands clean. If you don't want the business, then don't take it. We can't guarantee that every single little thing is going to be taken care of forever. You're going to have to take a little bit of risk for it. So it's funny because we could have a call, Aaron, at, you know, one o'clock one day on buyer side and demand a four year or two year term on reps and then have a call at two o'clock and say, there's no way we're doing anything more than one year. So the point being, if you're the seller, your main argument is that you just don't want to be screwing with this for a really long time, but it's hard to get out of that. And related to this, but uh, I guess this is on page 188. I thought it was really interesting. I didn't know this, but when a public company is acquired, the reps and warranties, they expire at closing. So that that was something that I didn't know. And you know, so I guess there is no... 12 to 18 months right. there. And I think that's you know, for protection because of the individual right. shareholders, right. right? You're going to go after the uh, public who owns the company. Okay, I wanted to talk about something that they did on page 185, the entrepreneur's perspective, when they're talking about assumption of stock options. So the stock option thing is interesting because you want to know whether the acquiring company is going to buy the stock options or not. There's going to carry on the plan. Excuse not buying, but it's going to carry on the plan. Or they might just say, you know what? We're just not going to hire those people. We don't need all those people, right. so they're not going to vest. And if those people didn't have a single trigger acceleration, if they all had double trigger acceleration, then unless they're being terminated you know, for the wrong reason, or it depends on what their options say, but there's a chance you might have some people who are walking, who are losing out on this. Do you want to explain really quick double trigger yeah, versus probably single trigger? Should. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. Single trigger acceleration means a single event can accelerate all of your vesting. It's generally a change of control. Right. Double trigger acceleration means you need two events to trigger acceleration. The first is usually change of control. The second is usually termination without reason or without cause. Within like 12 months. Within generally. a certain period yeah. of time, correct. So that what that does is that protects the acquirer. The acquirer is buying a company. You don't want the acquirer to buy the company. If they all have single trigger acceleration, right. all their engineers are going to leave. Right. right? And that's probably material value or material part of the value of the company. So you have double trigger. You say, all right, engineers, we're not going to accelerate your vesting unless we terminate you without cause. But that's a way for the engineers to be protected and to get a job. We had a client of ours recently did a stock sale. And 
his employees, the company's kind of in a tough spot. I mean, they sold at a decent rate, a decent price. All the investors made a two or three X return in a couple of years. So it was a pretty good return. But just the way the economics worked out and with the liquidation preferences, the his team wasn't going to do very well. And they're all going to get a slight increase in their jobs. But these were guys that were making 150, 200 before who were working for the startup for 75 and 80 because it was a startup. Right. But the way that the liquidation preferences fell out, their common wasn't going to be worth that much, right? And they're converting their common into new stock. So what he did, and, and this founder came out okay, and this is a very recent sale of ours, Aaron, and he was going to come out okay. He took a couple hundred thousand dollars of his shares, and he went to the buyer and he said, I want to allocate these to the employees. And they ate it up. And the buyer said, fantastic. Wow, what a great CEO you are. This guy probably took 15 to 20% of the value that he was going to be receiving and allocated these guys. And they got bought up by a publicly traded company. Right. So once the lockup period ends, they're going to be able to sell. So he went and basically put a cash bonus of about 50 grand in four or five different employees' uh, pockets. And they really, really appreciated that. So this box on page 185, you know, remember your employees, remember your advisors or the people that you gave options to. They helped you get to where you were or where you are. Uh, so don't forget them when you have to make a tough decision. I mean, sometimes it's better for you to fall on the sword a little bit or to take a little bit less. You'll earn their respect and trust. You'll probably get some cash out of them for your next endeavor. Right? There's a good way, good way to build rapport with them. But just don't forget about them. All right, Aaron, let's wrap up this for part one of chapter 14. Let's come back here shortly and get to part two and we'll release these in two separate parts. Thanks for listening. Check out part two. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at